Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And a warm welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us on this busy Wednesday where we discuss peace, prices and even pooches. So clearly we have to start there. Elon Musk saying in a rare interview that there is a brand new CEO of Twitter, his dog. Very Elon. Might be an improvement at times. Musk also claiming Twitter is close to break even with 6,000 fewer workers. Plus, he said major advertisers are now returning. Does Musk finally have the turmoil at Twitter licked? We will discuss. Plus... Biden in Belfast, the U.S. president delivering a keynote speech at Ulster University to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, saying the U.S. is committed to keeping the peace in Northern Ireland. Biden also had coffee with U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, a live report and all the details just ahead. Also, Taiwan tensions. Taiwan's foreign minister saying in an exclusive interview with CNN that China appears to be preparing for war following three days of military drills around Taiwan. Fresh comments, too, from Chinese President Xi Jinping today, not helping quell concerns. More on that shortly. But first, important new economic numbers just out from the United States. U.S. consumer prices up 5% year over year, the ninth straight monthly drop in that headline number. The month-over-month data coming in slightly below expectations, up just one-tenth of a percent. The main problem, and it's been this way for a while, remains core inflation, which strips out food and energy costs. Those numbers remain sticky. That figure, as you can see in front of you, up 5.6% year-over-year. Still, the bottom line is this is well above Federal Reserve targets. That said, here's the market reaction, and it's positive. The major U.S. averages, which had been trading in a pretty narrow range all week in anticipation of this data, are all solidly higher. Europe on the advance, too. A bit of catch-up going on here. Ahead of this data, too, we were pricing around a 75% chance of another quarter-point hike from the Federal Reserve in May. That said... Fed members do seem split on what to do next, given the recent turmoil in the financial sector. And of course, the International Monetary Fund saying just yesterday that financial system strains have contributed to a, quote, fog around the world economic outlook. Well, the fog does seem to lift a little on inflation in the United States. Claire Sebastian joins us now with the details. Claire, it's a bit of a head scratcher or at least a head turner when you get a core inflation rate. So after stripping out food and energy, that's actually higher uh, than the the headline number here. But um, the bottom line is, and I think I've made it, it's still too high for comfort. Yeah, core is the key word today, Julia. I think this is the headache for the Fed, the fact that when you strip out uh, food and energy, those more volatile factors, uh, the number did re-accelerate this month to 5.6% year on year. Shelter is the key contributor. We're talking rents, housing costs. That is the thorn really in the Fed's side as it continues to fight inflation. The other contributors to the increase, motor vehicle insurance, airline fares, household furnishings, 
things like that. Well, food, the index for food remained unchanged and energy was down uh, 3.5%. So the energy-driven shock to inflation seems to be in reverse now as we see the overall number come down. What this means, I think, for the Fed, Julia, certainly if you look at the Fed funds futures, they've come down in the last half hour from pricing in about a 75% chance of a quarter point rate hike at the next meeting down to about 66%, about two thirds. I think this means the next meeting is possibly in play, although perhaps not enough to to spark a pause uh, if you talk to experts because, of course, of that very sticky uh, core inflation. But certainly it does add to the debate around that next Fed meeting. Yeah, he's got to manage expectations, whatever they do at that meeting, about what more they have to do beyond. Um, We'll be discussing this later on in the show. Claire Sebastian, thank you for your analysis. Now, in just a few moments' time, U.S. President Joe Biden will leave Northern Ireland. He's headed south of the border to continue his trip in the Republic of Ireland. The visit, which he began by meeting political leaders in Belfast, commemorates a quarter of a century since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement that brought peace to Northern Ireland. He spoke at Ulster University a short while ago. So let's celebrate 25 extraordinary years by recommitting to renewal, repair, by making this exceptional peace the birthright of every child in Northern Ireland for all the days to come. That's what we should be doing. God willing to be able to do it. Thank you all for listening, and may God bring you the peace we need. Thank you. Nick Robertson is in Belfast and joins us once again on this. Nick, it is a moment to celebrate, and as President Biden said, no one really knew when that agreement was signed 25 years ago, whether indeed it would hold. But I think we also have to talk about the fact that he was at Ulster University. We've got a paralysed parliament there and and the Brexit negotiations have made this very difficult. He had a fine line to walk. Did he achieve it? Um, In the short term, the answer is no. We've already heard or it's been reported that the leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, that's the main political party here, the unionist political party, pro-British, if you will, uh, that refuses to go into the power-sharing assembly at the moment because they think that the terms of the Brexit um, negotiations over the relationship between Northern Ireland and mainland UK, they don't feel that the government's got that right in its negotiations with the EU. So President Biden in his speech there said, I don't want to be presumptuous, but he talked about the importance of that huge achievement of the Good Friday Agreement, which was the power-sharing government and the importance of keeping that up and running as a way of ensuring the peace here. But we've heard, or it's being certainly reported, that the leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, Jeff O'Donnellson, is saying that what President Biden has said doesn't change the political dynamic here, that they still want to see more concessions essentially from the European Union. But I, but I think in broad terms, President Biden's speech laying out how to try and lay to rest some of the perceptions here that he might be pro the nationalists, pro the United Island uh, parties here in Northern Ireland. He tried to lay that to rest talking about his English ancestry and Captain uh, George Biden, uh, an, uh, a captain in the in the in the English army back in 1828, he said, or 1842, he couldn't remember the precise date. But I think he was trying to sort of, you know, um, bridge the perception that he is just trying to sort of support the nationalist parties here. But the unionist parties are saying, yes, but this doesn't this doesn't resolve our issues. Yeah. And we'll forgive him the date slip. That was 
quite a while ago. Um, Nick, great to have you with us from Belfast there. And as Nick was saying, we're going to keep up with President Biden's movements over the coming hours, including his departure from Belfast and heading south to Dublin. Expected any moment, we'll show you Air Force One when we see it. For now, Elon Musk opening up about the challenges of running Twitter. In an interview with the BBC, he got into the company's financial woes and how he's trying to fix them, including laying off a significant proportion of the firm's staff. I think it was around just under 8,000 and 8, we're about 1,500 right now. Okay. And it, it, has it been hard letting that many people go? Yeah. Not fun at all. It's painful. Do you have any regrets about buying Twitter? Um, I think it was something that uh, needed to be done. Um, I mean, so it's you, been, you it's said been quite that difficult, you, you know. It's, uh, I'd say that, like, the, the pain level of Twitter has been extremely high. Um, this hasn't been some sort of party. Um, so uh, it's been really quite a stressful situation, uh, you know, for the last several months. Not, not an easy one. I, I, um, I was, but apart from the pain, I mean, so it's been quite painful. Um, but I think uh, at the end of the day, it, it should have been done. I think did I, were there many mistakes made along the way? Of course, I'm, you know. Um, and uh, but you know, all's well that ends well. Claire Duffy joins us with more on this. I mean, there's a lot we can say about this interview, the fact that it even took place and actually why it took place. Um, Claire, but there was a bit of a mere culpa there with the difficulties, how painful it's been, particularly painful for the people that lost their jobs. Not so sure all's well that ends well, though. Uh, there's still a lot of work to do. Right, Julia, what I think is so interesting about this is that, you know, Elon Musk is trying to paint this picture that he's trying to rescue this company, this platform that he loves. But this is a situation that is all of his making in a lot of ways. You know, he didn't have to buy Twitter almost, you know, offer to buy Twitter almost a year ago. And, you know, at the start of his takeover, he sort of eschewed advertisers. He brought back rule violators on the platform, which made advertisers nervous. And that threatens the business. Um, you know, so he sort of says some of these problems existed. Certainly Twitter wasn't perfect before his takeover, but a, a lot of this sort of difficulty that he's talking about here is something that he's brought on himself. Do you feel like you're an impulsive person? I mean, have I shot myself in the foot with tweets multiple times? Yes. Do, do you feel like... <laughs> I need bulletproof shoes at this point. You've, I mean, you've definitely done that. The issue is that you're now a Twitter owner. Do you, do you feel like you should be... look at your tweets more? You have more, a higher responsibility when you tweet something out for it to be accurate. I think I should not tweet uh, after 3 a.m. That's the rule. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, maybe 2 a.m. That's the new rule. I mean, you hear exactly there. He's talking about not tweeting after 3 a.m. You know, so many of the policy decisions he's made have been sort of last minute and, you know, he's not consulting experts on these things. And so I think that is sort of important to keep in mind when you hear him do interviews like this. Yeah, I think we've learned for a long time now that um, rules are more like guidelines where, where Elon Musk is concerned. But I think what he said in the beginning was his, you know, his heart was in the right place. He cares about freedom of speech. Um, it just got far more complicated, not to mention the price tag. Um, I'm just fascinated to see whether he can do more with so much less in terms of staff. Um, work not over. Claire Duffy, it's a big thank question. you so much for that. Yeah. Okay.
Let's move on. China appears to be preparing to start a war. That's what Taiwan's foreign minister told CNN in an exclusive interview after Beijing's recent military drills. Just a day earlier, Chinese President Xi Jinping visiting a Navy unit and stressing the military is increasingly ready for combat. Ivan Watson joins us on this now. Ivan, I think it's hard perhaps to, to say anything else in light of the simulation videos that we've seen and the um, the sort of obvious preparations, military drills that we've seen, but we also have to provide context on likelihood and probability too. I think we need your context. Well, there's an awful lot of posturing going on, mm. uh, a lot of signaling. Uh, Beijing very unhappy with the uh, trip that the democratically elected president of Taiwan recently made to Latin America and to the U.S., where she met uh, with the U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, uh, showing its displeasure by conducting three days of military drills around the self-governing island of Taiwan, which the Chinese government considers to be a, a rogue region of China itself. The government in Taiwan says that those exercises were a threat to its security. Take a listen. Look at the military exercises and also their rhetoric. Uh, they seem to be uh, trying to get ready uh, to launch a war against Taiwan. The Taiwanese government look at the Chinese military threat as something that cannot be accepted, and we condemn it. Right. So uh, on top of those tensions, you also have uh, what we're hearing Chinese civil aviation authorities informing the governments of Taiwan, South Korea and Japan that they want airspace closed to traffic uh, to the northeast of Taiwan for a 27 minute window on Sunday for something that the Taiwanese officials say are aerospace activities. Uh, the South China Sea uh, is claimed almost all by China for itself. Uh, you have contesting claims from other countries like the Philippines. And get this, to add to the complexity in the region, uh, the Philippines is un now currently conducting some of the biggest joint military exercises with the U.S. And 18 days of these kind of drills uh, involving more than 17,500 military personnel, the uh, secretaries of state and defense of the Philippines and the U.S. issued a joint statement and they criticized China, accusing it of disrupting fishing activities by the Philippines, threatening the Philippines' food security. Uh, that is something that did not go over well in Beijing. The foreign ministry uh, firing back with a statement claiming, quote, China has indisputable sovereignty over the islands in the South China Sea. Everybody is positioning and posturing in this hotly contested region. Yeah. Julia? I was about to say we've gone full circle on the uh, posturing, and it's uh, taking place in many places. Um, Hmm. Ivan Watson, thank you so much for that. Okay, straight ahead. Price rises continue to cool down ahead of the summer. We take a closer look at inflation and the Federal Reserve with the economist Torsten Slock after this. And later, the buy now, pay later boom. The CEO of online shopping giant Klarna joins us to discuss the future, including AI to help you shop till you drop. Well, not literally, we hope. Stay with us. We're back after this.
Welcome back to First Move and America's continued battle against pricing pressures. Consumer prices rising in March by 5% year over year, the ninth straight month of slowing inflation. The rate of price rises easing ever since it hit a four-decade high last summer. But of course, the challenge is it remains a long way away from the Federal Reserve's target. And it's not only these data points that matter, though. Consumers' expectations of where prices are headed are also a crucial part of what the Federal Reserve watches. And my next guest also tracks data like this very closely. And as this chart shows, the data does suggest Americans do see inflation continuing to ease and dramatically. Joining us now is Torsten Slock, Chief Economist at Apollo Global Management. Torsten, it's always brilliant to have your wisdom on the show. First and foremost, what do you make of this latest number and tie it to consumers' expectations of where inflation is headed to? Because this is critical. And this is very important, Julia. As you're saying, the good news is that inflation today just came out at now the lowest level in two years. We peaked last summer at 9%. And as you said, we're now down to 5%. So that's the good news. The bad news is that uh, the Federal Reserve has a target that inflation should be 2 so from that perspective, five is just still too high. And if you look in the details of the report, as you're highlighting, there's a lot of things that are hitting consumers that are still showing a very elevated level of inflation. For example, if you look at cost of transportation, that went up. If you also look at airline ticket prices, also went up. If you look at the cost of housing, still very elevated. So from a consumer perspective, we have probably picked the lowest hanging fruit now that inflation came from nine to five. But we got to get all the way down to two. And this is the difficult part for the Federal Reserve and for markets that getting from five to two is probably going to be a good deal harder than it was to get from nine to five. And if you nine to five, if you um, tie what we saw today and the progression that we're expecting in consumers' minds to the jobs data and the resilience that we've seen in the jobs market, does that argue that the Federal Reserve, even if they're more calibrated perhaps on what comes beyond May, that they still have to do another quarter point hike? Yeah, because exactly the employment report last Friday was relatively solid. So a very significant part of the inflation problem at the moment is that in 2022, we saw goods inflation come down. During the pandemic, we were all sitting at home buying things online. And once the supply chains got straightened out, then inflation in goods and the things that we were buying online suddenly became cheaper and inflation started coming down on the goods side. In 2023, the story will be that we need to see inflation come down on the services side. And one very important driver of service sector inflation is wages. If we think about that, we go to a restaurant, if you stay at a hotel, if you fly on an airplane, a very significant part of the costs for services is wages. And on Friday, with the employment report being so strong, that means that we have seen the correction in goods play out. But now we need to see the correction in services play out. And a very critical driver of services is that the labor market is just still strong. And therefore, service sector inflation is probably also going to take quite some time. That's why the debate around the Fed is about, well, how long time is it now going to take before we will get inflation all the way down to that 2% target? You know, 
we've had the IMF warning about clouds on the horizon once again and the uncertainty in the outlook. And you were the first person I called when we saw the banking turmoil in the United States and what the impact was going to be. And you explained to me the importance of small banks lending to small businesses and small businesses being a huge and a significant chunk of the hiring that takes place in this country. And you also provide great data of how banks' behaviour, even in the last two to three weeks, has changed in terms of their willingness to lend, the amount that they're lending, and the deposit outflows that they've seen. Just talk to me about some of this data and what you think the likelihood that it's sustained is and what the economic impact, because this is also what the Fed's having to juggle at this moment too. Yeah, and that is indeed a very important point. We just still don't know quite yet how severe this will be, but it is certainly a downside risk. The main issue is that the small banks, and here remember in the Fed data, bank number 1 to 25 is defined as a large bank, and number 26 to 5,000 is a small bank. And those banks, number 26 to 5,000, they account for 40% of all lending in the U.S. economy to consumers, to companies, and to real estate. So that means that the small banks do play a quite significant role. And if the regional banks now are going through a process of repairing their balance sheets because they are facing higher cost of borrowing, they're facing also asset price declines, and they're also facing more regulatory scrutiny. That does mean that the risks looking ahead are that credit, meaning borrowing in the economy, is simply going to get more difficult. In other words, think about the most simple example. You and I walk into a bank. We would like to borrow $30,000 to buy a car, and the bank needs to turn around and find that $30,000 somewhere. Do they want to take that money from deposits? Well, deposits, there's some uncertainty about now the duration of deposits and the stickiness of deposits. So maybe they will not be willing to take it from there. Maybe borrow it in the money market, maybe borrow it from the Fed, maybe the federal home loan banking system. There's just a lot of uncertainties about how are the banks now going to provide the credit, provide the loans in the economy. And that's the risk that we add on to the economy already slowing as a result of the Fed hiking rates. And that's why, as you said, that the uncertainty is still significant, but the data coming in is pointing more and more towards some downside risks, at least over the next several months in terms yeah. of credit conditions tightening. Yeah, yeah it's, it's that challenge of, yeah. um, is this a knee-jerk response? Does it settle down? Do they go back to, to lending again? We're just in this gray period now where we just have to wait and see how this data plays out. Something else that I think I've heard a number of times, Torsten, and it also ties back to the significance of lending to a particular sector from some of these smaller banks too, is the commercial real estate market. How worried are you by activity there and the the sheer fact that we know that a lot of these office buildings around the country have remained empty post-COVID? How concerned are you by this too, even for the smaller banks? Yeah, so the smaller banks account for 70% of commercial real estate lending from the entire banking sector. So the smaller banks have been a very important reason why we have built so much office space in the last few years, why there have been built skyscrapers here in Manhattan. And if you look at occupancy rates, including here in Manhattan and also in Chicago, they are now less than 50% of where they were before the pandemic. So that means that we still have a lot of empty space in offices. And adding on top of that, that the price per square foot over the last 18 months has declined now by 30% because there's simply less need for office space. And if we think about that over the next several years, that means that we'll probably see a fairly significant decline in the construction of offices, a fairly significant decline in the construction also of retail spares. So that brings you to the conclusion that just similar to after 2008, where it took several years, two or three years to correct after 
the housing crisis, where we had residential investment in construction of homes being relatively weak for three years. We should probably also look at the next three years and expect to see relatively weak construction of skyscrapers, of office space. And that therefore also means that we probably see lower growth in the economy, very similar to what we saw after the financial crisis in 2008. Wow. Who'd want to be a central bank um, setter of monetary policy in this day and age? I have um, no idea. Torsten, just very quickly, if we tie and wrap this all up, can we say then in, in your mind, probably one more quarter percentage point hike from the Federal Reserve and then we wait and see, but we're certainly not seeing cuts this year. I think that they have reached the peak now. And I think just to summarize what you and I have talked about here, I think the narrative in financial markets is going to go away from inflation towards focusing on growth and earnings. Because for the last uh, literally 18 months uh, or 24 months, the market conversation has all been about, oh, inflation is too high, inflation is too high. we got to get that under control. And the data that we just got this morning suggests that we now have inflation at least a good deal more under control. The trend is certainly your friend if you think about it from a Fed perspective. The worry now is, of course, focusing on growth and earnings over the next several earnings seasons, in particular the one that's coming up here. Will earnings still be solid or is there a risk that because we had to get inflation to go down, the Fed had to raise interest rates, and therefore growth is at risk of beginning to slow down. That's what the Fed is saying in their own forecast. That's what I would expect. That's what the consensus is expecting. So therefore, for earnings, it becomes a very interesting next few weeks focusing on how bad will it get? And are we seeing more of a faster slowdown, in particular because of these banking sector problems? Yeah. And what these companies are saying about the outlook too. Vital. Torsten, always great to have you on. Thank you so much. Torsten Slock, Chief Economist at Apollo Global Management there. Thank you. Okay, coming up after the break. Changing the way we shop online. Buy now, pay later giant Klarna. Harnessing the power of chat GPT. It could be a game changer when it comes to searching for what you want. Stay with us. Wall Street there, fist popping in the background. I hope I didn't get that mascot wrong. But anyway, truly welcoming Wednesday on Wall Street there from the New York Stock Exchange. US stocks on the rise in early trade with interest rate sensitive tech stocks. As you can see, the Nasdaq down by some four tenths of one percent. So a bit of a reversal there. Just released CPI data shows the Fed's inflation battle far from done. That looks more like it, by the way. Look at that change there. Seven tenths of a percent higher for the Nasdaq. We were a little early showing you those levels. But a bit of relief, I think, is the key on today's numbers that they didn't come in higher. Fresh challenges face U.S. investors Thursday, of course, too, when we get a new report on prices at the factory gate. And U.S. banks begin reporting first quarter profits on Friday. And as Torsten Slock was just saying, earnings going to be really key this quarter, especially. Now, the concept of buy now, pay later is firmly embedded in the global shopping landscape. Apple, the latest to join the fray in letting consumers pay for purchases over time. Back in 2020, the sector as a whole was worth around $91 billion. Well, that's set to explode to nearly $4 trillion over the next decade, according to Allied Market Research. In this fiercely competitive marketplace, Klarna 
who we've spoken to many times, is now incorporating chat GPT functionality to improve the shopping experience. The company, which offers both pay now and pay later options, is building an AI plugin from its website, which allows conversational style searches. Here to discuss and more, Sebastian Simatikowski. He's Klarna's CEO. Sebastian, always great to have you on the show. Um, we obviously have to talk about AI, but I do want to talk about the business just tied to the conversation before that I was having. Um, I think the beauty of the product that you offer and was we've discussed in the past is that you can calibrate dynamically for credit conditions as they change. The US is also your biggest market, I believe, now. Talk me through what you're seeing and how you're adjusting. Well, very much in line with what we've been talking about. It's great to be back, Julian. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Um, look, exactly as expected, right? The, fa- the fact that we underwrite every transaction as opposed to kind of extend the credit limit and then let people max out on it. The fact that we have short period of people pay back basically in only 60 days and that it's fixed installments, we are seeing losses going down, you know, a lot compared to where they were a year ago. So it's it's really working out as expected. And, you know, the, the, the strength of the model, when we change our underwriting model, after just 60 days, 50% of our balance sheet is underwritten according to the new model. That's an agility that none of the large banks have. So that obviously is extremely helpful in an environment like this. And when we're talking about credit losses, I think we have to also um, put that into perspective as well. I mean, I think in the fourth quarter, it was um, 0.58%. So we're talking significantly less than 1%. And you have a 99% repayment rate at this stage too. Can you maintain that? Well, actually, yes. If we've looked at like, I mean, I've been, you know, I'm celebrating my 18 years here. So finally, Klon is an adult, I guess. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, it, this is exactly what we've seen over those years is that like, if you provide a form of credit that is much healthier, I mean, I always advise people go and watch Netflix, credit cards explain 20 minutes, and you'll see all the bad practices that banks have applied in the last 20 years to make people you know, borrow too much, right? Because they wanted to max out on credit card, max amounts on interest rates. And if you don't apply that, if you have a better, healthier credit, you'll have better and healthier losses. So it's very, very uh, consistent with that. But you are adjusting to some degree too, because I remember when we first started talking about this, you never charge late fees. And I, I see that now, I think the UK is one example where you are charging late fees. So you are saying, look, we're going to have to incentivize people if they're not going to pay back in the time, that there will be a penalty for that. Correct. I mean, we've tried that. We wanted to see if that was even better to not charge any late fees, but we did see that a little bit of an incentive actually mm-hmm. helps people pay on time and makes people more treating and using the credit in a more responsible way. It's a little bit like a city without parking tickets. Doesn't work that great, but it's also not great if the government starts making money on parking tickets, right? So you have to put it at the right level. Yeah, it's like carrot and stick. At some point, there needs to be a stick exactly. if, you, if you decide you're going to um, not pay. Consequences, um, right? I, I think it's all that. Yeah, and, and I agree with that. Um, let's talk about competition. I, I saw some comments that you made last August, and you said um, Apple coming into the market and offering um, buy now, pay later facilities is testament to the power of this tool for customers, and that they want something that isn't like a credit card with um, extortionately higher fees. Um, but it is also competition. How are you thinking today and, and what impact? It's early days, I know, but do you expect to see an impact on, on market share? Look, I have to tell you, um, and this may sound maybe potentially a bit arrogant, but all of that is noise currently. Like through my 18 years in the industry, going through a financial crisis, going through COVID, everything that I've seen, I have never seen anything like what ChatGPT has launched, this technology and what AI means. This is a 
fundamental change to business. It's going to have a dramatic change. I mean, basically, for all software co- companies, and if you look at banking, it is software at large, right? So what, the only thing I'm thinking about right now is how do we apply this technology and how do we really lean into this? Now, I was one of the ones who was like, you know, whatever, Bitcoin, crypto, that's noise. A lot of these trends, I usually don't, I'm not the one who would jump on something as much as this, but this is, I've never seen anything like it. So that is the only thing that I focus at at the moment. <laughs> but you're answering one question with a, a different answer. But are you saying that the functionality that you can see and the, benefit, the benefits of um, incorporating ChatGTP outweigh any perhaps market share give up that you that you see from 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 Apple is is that what you're saying? You can grow the bigger pie, and you worry less perhaps about the competition. Yeah. How? In the end, in the end it, you know, credit cards is a trillion dollar market cap industry, right. right? And it's had lack of transparency, high switching cost, and massive barriers of entry for new competitors. You can have ChatGDP write your bank application, and it will do a pretty good job at it, right? The switching cost when you can have a computer say, "Look, I don't like the mortgage." go and find me another bank and and negotiate a better mortgage for me. Yeah, but the bank needs all of my data in order to be able to understand what credit risk profile I am. No problem. Transfer it. I mean, we are seeing fundamental shifts to how the banking industry will work and what retail banking would look like. We in Inside Klarna, I have 14 ongoing initiatives. They range from recruitment, marketing, legal, financial analysis, compliance, risk control, management, software development, underwriting, fraud prevention, it's everywhere. This technology allows us to scale and move at a pace that was unthinkable a few years ago. My vision for what Klarna was about was always to be the financial assistant that really, really cared about your customer, the customer's best interests, help them save time, help them save money, make them less worried about their finances. These were difficult goals to aspire for and, and, and to deliver on. It is actually doable now. So like, I think this is a, a massive, tremendous shift. Yeah, but a deliverable goal is also making money doing it. And and final question on this at this Apple point, and then we'll move on because I do want to I yeah. want to ask the how again with with ChatGPT. Um, yeah. Is there a risk that there is a sort of race to the bottom in terms of what fees you can charge, or that you have to push out the time that people get to to pay back simply because perhaps the first option, particularly if you've got um, an iPhone product phone, that the first option you get is Apple Pay. And then if you don't choose to do that, then you've got your Klarna or your PayPal option behind that. Because I've sort of already had that. And I worry about that for your biz. Yes. But I think, again, like it's a little bit a misunderstanding in the market that like it's all about buy now, pay later. Klarna offers both debit and credit. But in addition to that, the key key differentiating is the fact that we, um, we actually have access to SKU level data, right? which makes that every purchase you make with Klarna, we know not the amount that you buy, but the full uh, digital receipt. And that allows us to provide a much richer experience. And a lot of these features are far beyond what Apple has introduced now with Apple Pay Later. That also only works on Safari and only on an iPhone and only for customers that activated it and so forth. So I don't expect this to be any meaningful impact on our business uh, in the near term. And, and this is an interesting point, too, because we should also talk about your merchant partners. I mean, you have 450,000 of, of those, I believe, now. So let's talk about perhaps what ChatGPT means to pushing traffic to certain merchant partners, perhaps, if that's what a consumer that's using Klarna is looking for. Can you better monetize those merchant partner relationships going forward using GPT functionality, too? Because this seems to me like a potential revenue opportunity, too. 
Absolutely. So marketing revenue is the fastest growing revenue line right now, Klarna. One of the things that we've experimented with is to say to people, look, you have decided to trust so much of your data with Klarna. Now, would you like to share that data to get a better retail experience, to get a better um, advice for what you should purchase? And a lot of people say, yes, I may not want to you know, share it with everyone indefinitely, but I'm happy to share it in a, in a one-time relationship where I want to get the right advice for my next, next fishing trip to Alaska, whatever it might be. And when we feed that data then, because consumers want to give that consent, just like you, you, know, you would step into a normal Best Buy store and they would ask you, well, what's your budget and what's your preferences and what brands do you like or whatever in order to advise you on your purchase. It, when you do that, the, the quality of this technology, the advice it gives, the opportunity to provide you with the relevant answers, it, it just explodes. Like I, I was listening to Microsoft's pre- presentation of Bing, and one thing that they highlighted is that 40% of Google searches are the results are not relevant because they're not customized to you as an individual. So we have this amazing opportunity to help customers provide this data to make those answers more relevant. And, and that's something that we're seeing, you know, is, it, it is growing tremendously and customers love that experience. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've just read Reid Hoffman's book, uh, the LinkedIn co-founder on the difference between ChatGPT and um, GPT-4 and oh boy, when that comes, then we, we're really talking. Um, I've run out of time. Sebastian, you're gonna have to come back. Yeah. I always do this. I've got a million more questions. Um, great to chat to you and uh, exciting to hear what you're doing. Sebastian Thank you so much. Thank you, there. Thank you. The Clan, the CEO. Okay, as we've been telling you all hour, President Biden is about to depart Belfast for Dublin. Here are some pictures of the president getting on Air Force One just moments ago. CNN, of course, will be staying across his trip, marking the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. So that's uh, Air Force One there. And uh, President Biden on his way, I think it's about an hour and 10 minutes to Dublin, where he will arrive shortly. And finally, a sports fan with deep pockets is no doubt walking on air today after a historic auction in New York City. This pair of iconic Air Jordan sneakers or trainers in my world, worn by Michael Jordan himself, have been sold for $2.2 million. They are officially the most expensive trainers ever to sell at auction. Jordan played in the trainers, sneakers, in his final NBA championship tournament 25 years ago. I wonder what size they are. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they'll be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. I don't think they're going to be worn. Marketplace Asia is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 